I want to get as much time for, for Bill Ross as well, whose talk probably, again, is more important than what I have to say today. But, but my talk, essentially, if I can get anything across to everybody here, is that this vitreous gel causes all the trouble we have. It, it essentially creates a job for vitreoretinal surgeons. And um, there, there's, there's uh, a famous guy who's, whose whole career has been devoted uh, to this vitreous gel, his name is, is Sabag, and he's in California. And he's done all this work on, on the vitreous. And the vitreous is this, this elusive substance, very hard to really image. And so he's done incredible studies of pe taking freezing eyes, peeling off the choroid, the retina, and showing what the vitreous looks like. Um, and I'll show you some of these pictures, and I'll show you how he came up with, essentially, him and a, and a bunch of others have come up with a unified theory of, essentially, pretty much what we do surgically. Um, am I up here? Okay, so you got it switched. What, what happened there? You you've got it switched. You have to. Can you exit that and mirror it? And mirror? Yeah. Show me how to mirror. Your displays. Um, okay, so uh, the interesting thing about this talk is actually I it's the first time I've ever given a talk where I actually have no words on my slides. It's all pictures. It's going to be sort of a slideshow. <laughs> um, there's videos. Um, and uh, so there's really nothing to write down, but the concept is key in that this vitreous gel in the eye is an octopus. And, and the, the reason I say it is was when we go to the operating room, um, I learned under my training with, with, um, uh, with the vitreoretinal surgeons here when I was training in, in uh, Vancouver, and especially with, with Bill Ross, if you inject Kenalog into the eye at the very beginning of surgery, you haven't done one single cut of vitreous fibers. The kenalog stains the vitreous, as we know, and the way it stains, each time you're looking at yourself going, I can't believe that's the case. This is a retinal detachment, but the vitreous hasn't separated. So how do we get a retinal detachment? How do we get a tear? This is an epiretinal membrane where there's supposed to be a posterior vitreous detachment. It's not there. And there's a, the, ret the vitreous is attached. This is a macular hole, and there can be a vitreous attachment, a non-vitreous attachment, anomalous vitreous attachment. So this is the book, Sea uh, Bag. If anybody wants to buy a book on just vitreous, it's really exciting work. Uh, it's good bedtime reading. Um, but this is the concept here. So you can have uh, a posterior vitreous separation. This happens in, in, in virtually almost all human beings. Uh, not everybody, but probably about 80% of human beings in their lifetime will develop a separation, which is normal. It, not anomalous, but a posterior vitreous separation. I'm here to talk about disease, anomalous ones. So there's this chart that Seabag has come up with, and I think it summarizes exactly what we're seeing. So if, if there's a partial thickness and the vitreous doesn't separate cleanly, you get all these different issues. So we're going to go through them all. And I'm going to try and do it kind of quickly so I can get up Bill Ross here as well. But the, essentially what we're looking at here is the interface, vitreoretinal interface disorders. And that goes from epiretinal membranes to macular holes to vitreomacular traction to vitropapillary traction to retinal tears to pretty much vitreous hemorrhages which are pulling on the, on the retinal vessels. And what is really going on here is the vitreous is attached to the retina as we start off in life. Um, after that, it's really there for embryological purposes. So you have to form an eye around something in your mother's womb. After that, it serves no purpose in human beings. Really, all it does is, is create business for retina surgeons. 
Um, and, and in this case, the vitreous is divided up arbitrarily. We have lacunae of fluid. We have vitreous fibers, which are collagen and uh, hyaluronic acid. And then we have the vitreous cortex, which is a condensation of the vitreous fibers, and that connects to the retina ILM surface. And on the far right there, I think I have a pointer. I don't know if it works. But you can see there's collagen fibrils, laminin, and fibronectin, and this amazing uh, interconnection that will break down over time. Okay, so that's what it looks like on the left side. That's the ILM's clean surface. Thank you. The top one. The clean surface of the ILM there. And the posterior vitreous cortex, which are all your collagen fibrils, your scanning electron microscopy. These stick, this would stick on top of that, and there'd be the fibronectin and all these other little, little protein compounds that stick them, but eventually they do separate because of saccadic movements in the eyes, which can go up to 400 degrees per second. I guess Duncan Anderson can verify that for me, or if I'm off by magnitude of order. But nonetheless, we move our eyes quite quickly, and there's a, there's a, a lag and slack phenomenon. So, so fluid sloshes back and forth in the eye until eventually we, we pull off. There's a break in the posterior cortical vitreous. Fluid gets in there and starts dissecting it out in a normal fashion. When that goes wrong, this is a young person. I believe this is actually a very young person. Uh, unfortunately, this is an autopsy in a, in a young one that didn't make it. But this is what the gel would look like when you're born. It's great for eye development. It doesn't serve much after that. This is Seabag and, and his amazing imaging and showing us exactly what the vitreous does over time. So it's a 33-week embryo. In fact, here we have the, the uh, hyaluronic artery remnant, which will, is going to become Cloquet's canal. Look how thick this por uh, posterior cortical vitreous is that would attach to the retina as a young person. I, I do pediatric retinal surgery, and, and getting this off the retinal surface is, is absolutely and excruciatingly difficult and sometimes impossible. As we get older, the posterior cortical vitreous is not as intact. This here is actually a hole here in the macular region. Um, I don't have a great one for the optic nerve. There's actually a hole in the posterior cortical vitreous there as well. Um, but essentially, these fibers, you can see they're breaking down, then there's lacunae of fluid. And then over time, it gets more and more ratty looking for a, a better description, for lack of a better description. And, and there, when you get into the eye and you do surgery, you realize that this vit vitreous is connected all over the place. It, it, it's like an octopus. Um, and then this is a beautiful image just showing how it all looks when you do it in cross-section. And so here's the co posterior cortical vitreous, this thicker fibrous vitreous. This is the regular collagen hyaluronic acid um, matrix. This is the ILM of the retina, a blood vessel, and all the different retinal layers. Just a, a beautiful photo. Um, so moving on now, so posterior vitreous detachment. So this is what's supposed to happen. You get a break in the posterior cortical vitreous, a clean separation from the retinal surface. Our OCT here is confirming that this is off. Now, whether it's attached to the nerve still, well, it will eventually pop off. And uh, an ultrasound is actually a very good way. In fact, it's the best way to see if there's a vitreous detachment. And here you can see clearly the vitreous, it looks like retina, but really that's the posterior cortical vitreous. And this is the vitreous in the middle. It's separated from the optic nerve head as well as from the macula. If you, if you look at an eye and you see a weiss ring, we used to say that's a posterior vitreous detachment and we were so assured of ourselves. Well, that's flip a coin. I mean, it really, when you get into the operating room, you can see a weiss ring, but it doesn't mean the vitreous is really detached from the retina. So unless you use these other modalities, we're fooling ourselves, and clinically we're not as good as we think we are. Look at it dead on. It's always trying to get away. Hey, eye floater. Hi. Hey, hey, where are you going? Away from your pupil. Well, maybe I'll look over here. I'll go over here. Yeah. You've got an answer for everything, don't you? 
So these things drive people mad. But at, at any rate, this is sort of a normal thing. People see floaters, and that's nothing to worry about. If it's more abrupt and you get a sudden posterior vitreous attachment, you get the flashes and floaters and sudden onset, we get more concerned because of this anomalous insertion and tears that can occur. Uh, what you just saw there is a video of an OCT. Um, let me see if I can play that again. Um, this is like a movie file, but you can see in areas where it's attached, in other words, where it's not attached. But this is somewhat of a clean separation here. I'll move on to the next video. So now let's get doctors into Doctors say he's got a 50-50 chance of living. Though there's only a 10% chance of that. So that's one of my favorite uh, videos. So there's a 50-50% chance of living and only a 10% chance of that. Because in medicine, we, we tell people stuff and their heads are spinning. So I'll get into epiretinal membrane surgery and macular hole surgery. We tell people, well, there's a 90% chance it's going to close, but a 70% chance your vision is going to get better. And then there's a 1 in 5,000 risk of, or 3,000 risk of infection, and their heads are spinning. And, and so that's a great video for me. But... So we have epiretinal membranes. So essentially what's going on with epiretinal membranes is you actually get um, an anomalous posterior vitreous detachment. There's still tractional areas where the gel is still attached to the retina. The retina is perceiving this as an insult. Um, In this case... RPE cells is the predominant cell type on um, scanning electron microscopy or transmission electron microscopy. And these cells grow on a sheet of layer on the retinal surface, thinking that there's actually something to heal. But there really isn't. And so you get epiretinal membranes. And this is just a surgery of what we do, which you guys have probably now seen many of these. And, and we, we essentially just we take the membrane and the internal limiting membrane, uh, depending on the surgeon. The, the idea of the internal limiting membrane when we take it is, is it's a proxy to ensure we got all the cortical vitreous and the epiretinal membrane off the retinal surface because you're one layer deeper. So there really can't be much below the, the internal limiting membrane. And it's hard to see here. I haven't actually stained this eye. This is just, um, a Kirker calls it naked peeling, which I, I like the term. But nonetheless, uh, <laughs> I attribute that to, to Dr. Kirker. Neat, he calls it neat. Um, but at any rate, we, we peel this stuff off. The same techniques for macular holes. Um, so let's talk to macular holes and its variants. There's, there's all these little things you may or may not have heard of. There's a foveal red spot, the FRS, or the micromacular holes. And, and the names may not be familiar, but I think at, uh, retinal surgeons who are getting referred to these cases, we see this all the time. And, and the interesting one is actually the foveal red spot where you see this little dip there in the outer retina. And patients tell you, they're usually quite young, and they'll tell you, I am seeing something dead center, and it's following my vision around. It's a scotoma in the center of my vision. And you look in, and you say, you look fine. And you get a fluorescent angiogram, and they look fine. And until we had this higher technology, we had no way to explain it. In fact, we thought they were crazy and told them to go home and uh, see a psychiatrist. But in reality, they really had something wrong. And these micromacular holes, very much the same. They can have 2040, 2060 vision, quite good vision. And they may have an element of cataract. And you're looking at them going, there's really nothing wrong with you. But we've been fooled. And, and this technology really has advanced sort of where we are. We're getting much better at finding these people, treating them earlier, and getting, I think, better results than have even been reported in the literature. So then we go on to macular holes. Well, on the top one, left here, this is actually what Serge was talking about. This is a pseudo hole with an epiretinal membrane. You get these sharp borders, sort of a squared off macula with an epiretinal membrane surface. When you get on the surface, if you do a C scan, which are are sort of uh, parallel to the retinal surface, you'll see there's all this wrinkling of the ILM um, by this epiretinal membrane proliferation. These are different stages of macular holes. Macular hole gas still wins the date for me because 
most brilliant guy to figure this out without having the technology we do. So now we have four or five different classifications. Uh, you can see here whether it, it attaches to what's going to become an operculum, if there isn't a operculum, if it's not attached at all, or if it's attached at each of the ends of the, of the edges of the macular hole. There's a another classification system, and I don't think it's all that useful, but what it does show is there's various mechanisms going on in each of these cases, and yet resulting in a macular hole. So there's vitreal macular traction, vitreal papillary traction, where the vitreous is separated elsewhere but does not want to release from the foveal center or from the optic nerve. This can look like a papillitis. I've had, well, I'll talk a bit more about this, but this is a, um, so this is a, a bi, um, sorry, um, uh, again, a picture of the posterior cortical vitreous. There's, there's essentially a hole here in the macular region where there should be, but there's ver anterior posterior fibers inserting into the macular region. Now, the artist has drawn it here where this whole cortical vitreous is separated. That's the optic nerve, but the macular fibers, there's still anterior posterior traction. The, it continues to separate, but this traction is not relieved. And when you look in the eye, you can see the weiss ring, but this is not relieved in this traction. And so, fortunately, we've realized these entities. This is an OCT rendition of the exact same thing, as well as clinically what's going on. And we have, uh, fortunately, we have ways to fix this. Um, and this is uh, just a case of my, of my imaging wasn't as good as what I could get um, from the books, but... This, this patient, if you take a line scan up here, that you can see how much of an octopus this gel is. So it inserts here, it catches here, it separates, reinserts. A line scan inferiorly, it reinserts there, it goes along here in the fovea, it attaches vitrofovial traction in the optic nerve right onto the nerve. And this patient looked like they had a papillitis. I mean, you really, it looks like a papillitis and it looks like a, a neuroophthalmic problem, but this is a structural problem. Um, this is a video here showing this patient here, essentially how it would look and sort of this sort of how it's going in and out of the retinal surface. Um, and so I just want to really enforce that if you look at the bottom here we have, or at the top, we have uh, epiretinal membrane, macular hole, macular puckler, puckers, uh, vitromacular traction, vitrofovial traction. Patients who have eye diseases... Uh, tend to have failure of, set of a cleavage between the vitreous and the retina. We have the vitropapillary traction I've, traction I've talked to, and then retinal detachment, retinal tears are all part of this unifying concept of an anomalous PVD or vitromacular adhesion anomaly. Um, macular degeneration patients, they, they can be, you know, the average age that we're seeing is, is getting older. We see 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, and they still have a, the vitreous is not detached. And you have to realize that also these people have uh, complement factor abnormalities as well as complement, uh, sorry, chromosome 10, which are mitochondrial, thought to be um, abnormalities, and some level of background inflammation, which doesn't allow the gel to separate. Likely in the diabetics, the same. They're leaking protein, inflammatory markers, and the gel just doesn't separate. We see patients with diabetic macular edema, which are resistant to any of the treatments, whether it's laser or it's injections, and sometimes require surgery, very rarely, because we're, we're hesitant to take out the gel, because that, that will make our anti-VEGF therapy less fruitful. It just won't stick around. We need like a reservoir to keep it. In retinal vein occlusions as well, you'll frequently see the gel is still attached. And I just actually recently took a patient to the operating room because I'd done an enormous number of injections and lasers and everything, but there's this window of opportunity to actually save the vision. And there was an epiretinal membrane and, and, and quite um, um, visible vitreal traction anterior-posterior. And I realized that at some point you have to do the best you can with the medical treatment, the laser treatment, but then if you miss the boat and wait too long, you'll lose 
the visual potential. So we took them for surgery and we're hoping the best. But again, large studies are lacking. And then finally, the horseshoe tears we're all familiar with this is the same thing. Essentially, the gel is supposed to go to the vitreous base, which is a circle here. It should extend four millimeters into the retina, two millimeters into the pars plana. It's about a six millimeter wide area. Bill Ross knows everything about the vitreous base because he's he's a, a buckle king and loves to to buckle the vitreous base for retinal detachments. And this is really his area of expertise. And and tears occur in this area when there's say a posterior anomalous insertion at that location. You get a tear, and that's been lasered. This one has caused a horseshoe tear retinal detachment. So there's some new stuff out there. So, so what can we do? So surgery is, is actually, you know, when you get to the operating room, it's, it's quite uh, enjoyable surgery and interesting surgery. Um, and I've shown you all the videos. But can we do something different and better? And there's some new stuff on the market. Acroplasma has caught a lot of attention. Um, it's good. It's not, I think, uh, a fantastic product, but it has many, many good uses. Um, essentially, for vitromacular traction, we, we saw... Uh, in their MIVI trials, uh, about a 30% um, release of vitromacular adhesion where it would occur in about 7.7% of patients without treatment or with just the placebo injection. So the placebo injection actually works, and people who do Avastin injections or Lucentis injections or any injection into the eye will, will tell you that once in a while, a patient will come in and say, all of a sudden, I've got all these floaters. So, well, you've induced the posterior vitreous attachment just by these constant injections into the eye. So, so placebo is, can cause a vitreous attachment. Um, but the editorial really says, well, pharmacologically, pneumatically, or surgically, surgical is the gold standard. Uh, this new ochroplasmin is very promising. 40% of macular holes um, will actually close at about a month with an injection of this chemical, which is now FDA approved. So that's quite exciting stuff. And what it does, it actually has... Two properties, it breaks down the, the interface between the vitreous and the retina, sorry, as well as the vitreous itself in a safe manner without causing damage to the retina. Um, but of, of interest, and just recently in a journal, they published a report on injecting C3FA gas, and it looks like it's just as good as acroplasmin. So if you put a gas bubble in and they had no tears, no breaks, no retinal detachments, the, the results appear to be the same, although they haven't done head-to-head -head trials. And then, of course, if you combine the two, well, who the hell knows? But uh, interesting stuff for the future. I hope it doesn't come too fast because I think we all enjoy the surgical aspects of these cases. But, um, but nonetheless, what's best for the patient is best for the patient. So the future is very promising, and I'll end off there. So thank you very much. And uh, next up will be Bill Ross. He'll be talking about challenging casing, cases and interesting fluorescein angiograms.